So tonight I brought my joy sign that goes out on my front stoop in December and is there throughout all the holidays. And as I was carrying it into the church tonight, I was thinking, you know what? I should be carrying my joy with me every day, right? We shouldn't just have our joy out just in December. And I have to say, I do. I, I try to commit during December to only do any Christmas preparations or holiday festivities, any of that, only if I will do it with joy. If I'm not in the mood that day to be joyful about decorating my tree, then it's not getting done. And I have to say my joy has grown in that I gave up sending out Christmas cards a few years ago. <laughs> oh, that was a good thing for me. Just, I did not like that. So, anyways, but as we're opening our Bibles tonight, beginning in Matthew, we begin in Matthew 1 with the, the genealogy of Christ. And you may say, oh, that's not my favorite part, thing to be reading, the genealogy, all that, that long list of names. But I am praying tonight that as we look at it together, that you will find that this is a passage that can bring us great joy. I would also challenge you to look at Andrew Peterson's song that's called Matthew's Begats. And it is. It's, it's a song that's got all the names of this genealogy in the book of Matthew. And it's really fun. And you can memorize it that way by learning that song. Check that out. I was reading an article last week by Jen Wilkin. It's called Son of a Son of a Son. It's in the, in the magazine Christianity Today. And she talks about a time, mind you, she's an author and a Bible teacher, right? So she's used to being in front of people all the time. She loves studying and, and teaching God's Word. But her pastor asked her to read a genealogy, not this one, the one from Luke. And she was like, oh, I really didn't want to do it. And then the pastor even asked me, should I not be? Have you read that before I preach? They were both kind of questioning the whole scenario. But lo and behold, she did as she was asked. And by the time that she finished that genealogy and got to the arrival of Christ, right? The birth of Christ, the climax of it, she said there were tears in her eyes and the audience applauded. <laughs> and so I'm hoping that's how we're going to look at this. Tonight, I'm not going to read through it. I'm not that brave. But um, as we look at this genealogy, we, we must know that genealogies were important to the Jewish people. This was the record of their heritage, proof of their um, legiti legitimacy and their inheritances. Um, if you were of a priestly or royal line, it would bring you great privilege and power. But for this genealogy, it's unique. It's unique in that it really does involve all the whole all of the Jewish people, right? It is their collective history. When they would see these names, many of them were so familiar, right? It's it's for them it's not just a list of names, but it's their whole story, their history with God. And they had been waiting a long time for their promised Messiah to come. And so, when we get to the announcement of Jesus Christ's arrival, it is, it's joy to the world, finally, 
The king has come. Let earth receive her king, just like that, the song that we sing at Christmas time. Great joy. If you open your Bibles, let's begin with just looking at Matthew 1.1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, some of you that were with us during the seamless study might recognize a few of these Old Testament passages that we're looking at. And the first one is here in Genesis 12, 1 to 3. You looked at this in your study. And these were the promises given to Abraham by God. God said, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And in him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham was promised innumerable descendants, that his family would become a nation, and kings would come in his family line. He was blessed to be a blessing, and this key promise that through his family, all the families of the world would be blessed. And so with Christ's arrival and being called the son of Abraham, Matthew is giving us this clue. That's what that promise back this way in Genesis was about. It's being fulfilled here in Jesus Christ. And then he also calls Jesus the son of David. Through the prophet Nathan, God had promised David that his throne would be established forever. And so here, Matthew is announcing that Jesus is the promised king in the royal line of David, who will reign over an everlasting kingdom. Matthew also highlights a difficult part of Israel's history, the Babylonian exile. Now we know with our, from our seamless study, right, that in the Old Testament what had happened was Israel had become a nation. God had fulfilled his promises to Abraham. His family had become a great nation, but that nation became divided into Israel and Judah. And then the Assyrians came in and conquered Israel, and the Babylonians came in and conquered Judah. And I think why Matthew might have included this this mention of the Babylonian exile is that what's most heartbreaking is the Babylonians had come in and destroyed the temple. Right where the very presence of God had dwelled in their midst, in their in their land, and so this was this judgment had come because of their turning away from the Lord, from them failing up, failing to live up to their calling to walk with Him and to be a light to the nations. And at this time in their history, it seemed as if God had forgotten them, and they were wondering, was His words were His promises true? Where was he? Had he left them? And so we start with Abraham and go to to David into the Babylonian exile, which seems to be the great low point. And then, 14 generations later, lo and behold, finally the Christ has come. The Messiah, which means the anointed one. And Christ in the Greek also means the Messiah. It means the promised king. So whenever you say Jesus Christ, remember that. Christ means that Jesus is the promised king. 
Now, there are, there are quite a few Old Testament texts that talk about the promised Messiah. Specifically, Psalm 72. You looked at a few verses there this week. I'll give you a couple of excerpts from Psalm 72. This is a prayer for this king. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May all kings bow down before him and all nations serve him. So this Messiah was, was not just to be the king of Israel, but king of the whole world. He was to bring justice, God's justice and peace to the entire world. You're welcome to check out Isaiah 11, 1 to 10 on your own time as well. It also speaks of the promised Messiah. So we've seen here in this genealogy that Matthew has carefully arranged it into to three groups of 14 or six groups of seven names. And what I want you to know is that the number seven is a very symbolic, important number. It symbolizes completion and rest. We know that God created, and then on the seventh day, he rested. Every seven years in Israel was to be a Sabbath year. They were to let, have the land rest so that it could be replenished. And then, at the beginning of the seventh seven, which would be the 50th year, it was called the year of Jubilee. When all debts were forgiven and all slaves were set free. You can check this out in Leviticus 25 if you'd like on your own time. So Matthew was making this very significant point. Jesus is born at the beginning of the seventh seven. He's saying that Jesus is the climax of the whole list. This is what all of history, not just Israel, all of history has been waiting for. All of God's promises would be complete in Christ. He is the king of kings and the king who would accomplish God's plan of bringing salvation to this broken world and bring rest to those who receive him as king. Jesus brings the greatest jubilee of all, freedom from slavery to sin and death. He would go to the cross to pay the debt that we owe through his sacrifice. And so this is why we say joy. And it's joy not just for you and me, but joy to the whole world. When you look at this list of names, this genealogy, you have to notice <laughs> that it's highlighting how faithful God is. It's letting us know that 2,000 years of God's promises are fulfilled in Jesus Christ, all of them. So it's giving us this picture of God's sovereignty and power that none of his plans can be thwarted. I've given you all together on your notes page how Matthew shows us five prophecies that are fulfilled just in the early years of Jesus Christ, just with his birth and his early years in, in chapters 1 and 2. And I love thinking about the fact that God, hundreds of years before Christ would come, God knew exactly how it would all happen, and he made sure to accomplish his plans and his purposes. In Isaiah 714, 
Isaiah said hundreds of years before, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Matthew quotes this in chapter 1, verse 20. We see also that Jesus' birth in Bethlehem was foretold and then fulfilled. The heartbreaking murdering of those babies in Bethlehem by King Herod was foretold. The return from Egypt was foretold. Even Jesus' childhood in Nazareth was foretold. And I want to read to you from Isaiah 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Jesse was King David's dad. And this idea of the branch had become part of God's people's hope for the Messiah. They talked about the branch that would come. It was another way of talking about the king that would come and and the, the royal line of David. And the town of Nazareth, at its root, is the word Nezer, which means branch. So God had all of these things planned out. It's another way of saying, yep, Jesus, he's the one. He's the one that I promised would come. I want to make a mention here that in Judge, that I have Judges 13.5 on your notes page. It's a mistake. Just cross it out, okay? Sorry about that. When we look at these Old Testament prophecies and talk about their fulfillment, I want you to remember two things. Oftentimes, just one verse is quoted. If you have the time, I would always encourage you to go back to where that verse is and then read the entire context around it. Oftentimes, that New Testament author might be referring to much more than we see in just that one verse. And you can see God's heart, more of God's heart, as you read all of the context. The other thing is that prophecies, prophecies much of the time, could be called multi-layered in their fulfillment. They can have kind of an immediate fulfillment that might have taken place in that original context where the prophet was speaking to God's people. And oftentimes it can have another fulfillment that's way later. So as we're looking at this genealogy, we have to see how God's love and his faithfulness endure. No matter what his people throw back at him, love and faithfulness flow out of him. And so I just want to read to you from this psalm tonight. I think it it gives this picture of joy that we can have, not just at Christmas, but all year long. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness continues to all generations. I love looking at this genealogy because I know that my view, when I look at my life, it's so small much of the time, right? I'm just focusing on days and maybe weeks. But looking at the fact that the Lord has been loving and faithful over all these generations, each name is known Right? And represents a time period in history where God was present and working there. And he never gave up on his plan or on his people.
We also must see as we look at this genealogy how God's grace abounds. There are quite a few evil kings included here. And even the good ones, as we know, as we've learned about King David and Solomon, they didn't get it right all the time either. We, you noticed in your study that women were included as well in this genealogy, which was unique. Often it was only the men that were mentioned in these genealogies. And we noted that some of the, these women had been through some difficult times, right? And maybe ha have been known for having some questionable character. But I would say many of the men all along, <laughs> you could say just the same. Just the same. What Matthew is trying to make clear is that Jesus is a king that is going to extend an invitation to welcome all into his kingdom. There are not just Israelites in this list, but there are foreigners as well. There are sinners, and what we would call, seem like, oh, the worst of sinners. <laughs> so we see that Jesus came to live up to his name to save the whole world, to save all people from every nation, from every generation, the wicked and the good, the powerful and the poor. Jesus will be is a king that reigns with mercy. And all are invited to his table and to join in his kingdom of mercy. Tim Keller puts it this way, In Christ, prostitute and king sit down as equals. And I would just say on a side note, because I even feel guilty that I just said it, let's try not ever to use the word prostitute. Let's call it what it is, that women get to, would never choose that life. They have lots of things that happen to them that where they end up there. So if you ever see that word, you can always exchange it for this, a woman who's sexually exploited. Just a favor that I would ask of you. Okay, let's get back to where we were. Um, I think as I look through this list, I'm challenged a little bit. I'm reminded that we can often be tempted to kind of categorize sin, right? And say, well, one sin is worse than the other. But when I look at this list, I think, oh, hallelujah. It's all by God's mercy and grace. And so maybe mine can be included in the list as well. And then let's look together to Matthew 1. Beginning with verse 18, we'll see about Jesus' birth and how he's called Savior and Emmanuel. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. Do you see that? The angel is letting him know, hey, hey, Joseph, you're in the royal line, calls him son of David. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. 
for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, right? We just read this verse. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So here, let's take a quick look at Joseph. He's called just. A person who is just or righteous is one that wants to treat all people equally, to treat them all well. And we see that in the way that he treats Mary. Okay? And you think, this must have been a heartbreaking moment, right, when he, did, he learned that Mary had become pregnant. But... His first response seems to be mercy. He is unwilling to put her to shame and resolves to divorce her quietly. See, being betrothed was a little bit more significant in this time than our modern-day engagements. It was you were almost you were already kind of considered married, even though you hadn't been through the big wedding celebration and the, and the living together kind of marriage hadn't really begun yet. But Joseph, as a man, had the power. He could have publicly shamed her. He could have called for her to be stoned. But he immediately, it seems, chose to cover it over, to make it happen quietly. Even no matter what he seems to to be, he must be experiencing, right? Some heartache. And so I think to myself, When I think someone has sinned against me, even before I know the whole scenario yet, is my first response mercy? Oh, I think I long for that to be the case. Because that's exactly what I've received from the Lord (laughs) in buckets full, right? Again and again and again, it's overflowing to me. Oh, Oh, may his mercy flow out of us, like it seems to here with Joseph. And then we also see he's not just just and merciful, but he's obedient. Add that to your list. He takes Mary as his wife, as the angel instructs him. He gives him the name Jesus, as he was told to do. He doesn't seem to be wasting time arguing with God about how maybe his reputation is going to be ruined. Or things are not going how he would have planned. Like maybe I would have. (laughs) few weeks back, I got to catch a glimpse of the impact of obedience in one couple's life and how it rippled out to many, many other people. I was at the 15-year reunion for Royal Family Kids Camp and talking with Jan Krieger. She and her husband, Bill, started this ministry here at this church 15 years ago. How... Before it all began here, they were in a difficult season of their lives. Her husband was in a kind of a huge, challenging transition in his work, and they had to move away from this area, which they didn't really want to do, and they moved to Michigan. And they were kind of trying to make a fresh start, and it was hard. And what did she do when she moved to a new place? But they went to a church, and she found a Bible study, right? So 
She's in Bible study, and she makes a friend, and her friend invites her and her husband to serve as counselors at Royal Family Kids Camp, which is a camp for foster care children, for children that have been taken from their homes because they've been neglected or abused. And I just think, you know, she could have easily said, you know what, I'm hurting right now. I don't have time for that. Love that in, even in this difficult situation, they took that first step of obedience. And so then later on, they moved back to this area. They started that ministry here, and it's 15 years later. And hundreds of children from Cape County have been loved so beautifully. And Janice, she keeps up with them. You know, they're teenagers. Some of them are in college now. It's been 15 years since that first camp. And not, to, not only the kids that have been loved with the love of Jesus, but all of the volunteers that got, have had the opportunity in this area to join them in their work. And to be able to see kids that are hurting, that have had experiences much different than maybe many of us have had. And how it's transformed their lives, too. And then Jan continues to be obedient. She, her husband passed a while back and she continues she couldn't once again just said oh I'm done I don't have Bill with me here anymore and I just think oh what a challenge would we be the ones that will take the step of obedience when God instructs us and then just trust him and maybe I think you know we think what if Joseph hadn't done what he'd done <laughs> right what would have happened God would have worked somehow but I just think that there are ripple effects that can come that we would never know when we just take that first step of obedience. We find also here in this passage how Jesus, his name means the Lord saves and reveals his mission to be savior of the world. And we find this name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This world is an ugly place because of our sin. And yet Jesus enters into the mess, into the sin, into the heartaches of this world. He is Emmanuel in the most desperate situations. He's there. He doesn't turn a blind eye to the injustices and brokenness in our world. He is there working, seeking to restore those who will turn to him. Professor N.T. Wright says this, since Jesus is Emmanuel, he must be with us where the pain is. So the next time, maybe you're in a difficult place, where you're in a place where you're hurting, I pray that you'll remember and that you will experience Jesus as your Emmanuel, that he's right there with you, right in the midst of it. He's with us in our pain and sorrow. When we're at our worst, when we're afraid, when our hearts are broken, when we think, how is this ever going to get resolved? He's there. He's our Emmanuel. And then last but not least, we see in, in Matthew 2 that Jesus is the true king. I want you to note here that this whole scene with the wise men happens a, a couple of years after Christ's birth. Okay, so Jesus is two years old-ish at the time. The wise men were religious leaders, astrologers, and wise men. They kind of all, it's kind of a unique occupation in this time. 
they must have had some knowledge of the Jewish scriptures. And it's believed that they came 900 miles from Babylon, a long journey to acknowledge Jesus as king. In the Gospel of Luke, we find how heaven broke through with angels in the night sky proclaiming Jesus' birth to the shepherds. And here we see God breaking through in in the heavens themselves by revealing this special star and guiding the wise men. He's announcing the birth of Jesus. They bring gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, which are gifts worthy of a king. And the wise men got it right. What else do you do if you got to be, to see Jesus? They fell down and worshiped him. And so this scene is in great contrast to what we see with King Herod, who is such a cruel imposter. He was called Herod the Great. He had no royal blood. His grandfather had converted to Judaism, so he was not really even fully Jewish. He was an ambitious military commander, given the role of king in this area by the Romans, in order to accomplish their own agenda, to expand <laughs> right, their Roman rule. Herod was a great builder of palaces and temples and amphitheaters. It seemed he was about building his own kingdom. And in his later years, which this was now, he was in his later years, he became a little bit crazed. He was kind of a megalomaniac, and he killed many of his family members because he did not want anyone to take his throne. And so we see this great contrast between Herod the Great and Jesus, who leaves the glories of heaven to become a human baby. He's born in a tiny nation that's under powerful Roman rule. He enters into the struggles and messes of human life. He is not like earthly kings who seek wealth and fame and power. Jesus comes to be with us, right where we are. And he comes to save us, knowing that we can't save ourselves. We see this heartbreaking scene where Herod is so threatened by Jesus, the true king, that he has those baby boys, two years and younger, killed in Bethlehem. And what we must see here is from the very beginning of Jesus' life, it's in danger. He becomes a refugee, running for his life. And so the shadow of the cross is here, right in the birth account. Also, we see that Jesus is the new and greater Moses. We see this passage that's quoted, Out of Egypt I called my son. So Jesus is a new and greater Moses who's ushering in a new exodus. Like Moses, Jesus' life is at risk right at his birth. Rulers who mistreated God's people both pursued Moses and Jesus. They were both called out of Egypt Each of them was on a mission of salvation for God's people, although Jesus is for the whole world, right? The Israelites were redeemed from slavery, and Jesus redeems those who follow him from sin and death. As you read the book of Matthew, look for more of these comparisons between Jesus and Moses. You'll find them. 
As we conclude tonight, I just hope that your faith is buoyed through looking at this genealogy of Jesus and these, his birth accounts, that we would see God as eternal, as God over every single generation who's present and at work in all time periods. That he knows people by name. As you sit here tonight, he knows you by name and he knows your story. He is near and he's working to fulfill his plans despite all the ways that we mess up and sometimes reject him. Our unfaithfulness cannot stop his faithfulness. No person, no earthly king or kingdom, no situation can thwart God's plans. And Jesus Christ, the promised king, comes and he's mighty to save, to save the worst of sinners. Hallelujah for that, because the older I get, I think the worse and the more sin I see in my life. And how do we respond with this good news of great joy? I pray that we would respond with worship and joy and obedience. Amen. Have a good night, ladies.